Welcome to Context, a podcast that explores different places through different lenses with an architectural focus. One of the very first episodes of Context, which is a podcast that I'm currently running from a room in Cambridge, the United Kingdom. Today, Context invites a good friend and a colleague who studies architecture and urban design in the same class as me, Shirley Lowe. Yes, she can introduce herself as she feels best. And then we will be discussing Limehouse in London. So Shirley, tell us about yourself. So hello, I'm very excited to be here. And I am originally from Hong Kong, but I spent... I think the past decade in the UK, studied there and I'm now doing a master's in architecture and urban design, as Kinsani has said, in the University of Cambridge. I'm sitting in my room on the 17th floor of my apartment building in Hong Kong right now, but today I'm going to talk about Limehouse, which is the site for my master's project. Thanks so much. Our, our program at Cambridge is quite interesting in that everyone in our class, we're about 28, Everyone in our class has a different site that they focus on. And it's sort of like this podcast in that many of the sites that people choose are sites that they're local to or that they're very deeply interested in or that they're just researching for, for other purposes. But this podcast is, is also it's a lot about architecture, but at the same time, it veers into the personal lens of the guest. Yeah, that lens, as I understand it, is it's about fiction and real space. Would you like to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So when we were told to pick a site, I was initially quite unsure what I was going to do. But then the reason I landed on Limehouse was because I started reading about the Chinatown in Limehouse, which is now vanished, but it existed in Limehouse between around the, the mid 19th century to the mid 20th century. And Limehouse is the reason it had a Chinese population was because it was situated at the heart of the London Docklands, which used to be the centre of the British Empire. It was a very cosmopolitan area with a lot of people from different cultures just stopping by sort of London because of the of the sea trades. And what was particularly interesting about the, the site was that there are a lot of stories about these criminal syndicates and like opium dens and gambling dens that have all emerged from this kind of slightly dilapidated Victorian slum districts, essentially. And I was really kind of fascinated by how different and kind of fantastical the writings were about this kind of quite ordinary place and how it gradually became more and more fantastical as different fictions layer onto each other. That's super interesting that you speak about these fictions and imaginaries and how they're embedded in a memory that one might not particularly have experienced, but it's recorded through the lens of others. It makes me wonder, do you draw from specific motifs, film? I did a little bit of reading on Limehouse. 
it seems as though it appears in, in quite a lot of sketches. You sketch quite a bit. It appears in a lot of writing, as you've mentioned, and, and some film. How do you generate your imaginary of Limehouse? Um, so I have looked at quite a lot of fiction books from the early 20th century, and quite a lot of them are sort of pulp fiction that sensationalizes the space and is in general catering for the kind of English middle class Victorian society. But there are also, and I, I would give an example of this, the Fu Manchu series by Sax Roma and also the Limehouse Night series by Thomas Burke. Mm. And these two novel series, they focus um, specifically on the oriental culture of the space, mm-hmm. partly imaginary, of course. But there are also some really famous writings that you and I would definitely have heard of, like The Picture of Dorian Gray by mm-hmm. Oscar Wilde that would mention Limehouse and the Opium Dents briefly. Or it's also featured in some of Charles Dickens' novels or some of the Sherlock Holmes novels. I think they sort of mention Limehouse in order to generate this kind of strangeness of the East End. And it's just an intriguing setting for a novel. Sometimes what is quite interesting about Limehouse is that the name of Limehouse sort of means something that's almost detached from the from the place itself. So in yes. some books, the Limehouse Golem, it would use the name Limehouse, even though the stories are kind of set in the nearby Whitechapel or um, the Isle of Dogs. But mm. the name Limehouse is used to evoke this strange tradition. This is super interesting. So many themes. Othering seems to be one. I wonder what Limehouse is like now. Yeah, London, as I'm sure we both know, uh, pre-COVID, is a super dense city that that's made up of all of these different identities, but still has this, let's say there's there's an English claim over it in that it is in the United Kingdom. However, all of these different identity groups make up that collective fingerprint of London itself. And so if, if you took a walk through Limehouse today, what would that mean? What does the reality versus the historical fiction of Limehouse look like if you think about it from a contemporary perspective? So if you walk around Limehouse today, I think kind of the strangeness and the fictional space that is really rich in fiction is not very obvious, I would say. So the neighbourhood is mostly, it's it's really piecemeal, actually. There are some remnants of the Victorian fabric, but then most of it has been bombed out during the Second World War. And and after that, you can also see the modernist legacy in the space. So there are some large social estates blocks. Um, And more recently, there are some mid-rise residential developments that are quite luxury in appearance. And this draws attention to the westward move of the middle class into Limehouse and into the East End in general, into Tower Hamlets. This is quite obvious in the backdrop of Limehouse, which is Mm -hmm. the tall towers of Canary Wharf, of like all the banks and uh, large corporations. It's a riverside neighbourhood that's um, west of the city of London, the financial district of London and west of Canary Wharf which is the kind of newer financial center. Mm-hmm. So it's set between these two very dominant financial center. And it's within the Tower of Hamlets, which is traditionally quite an impoverished area of London. Tower Hamlet has a very large immigrant population. And it, today, it's the largest immigrant population is Bangladeshi. Interesting. That's, yeah. yeah, that's super interesting. I suppose what you've described sounds like a palimpsest and just a layering of these different juxtapositions of of class, capital, culture, 
would you like to present the imaginary as something that is also attainable in in the the future memory of Limehouse? That is definitely something I want to see retained in the neighbourhood because I think it's sort of what distinguishes Limehouse from other East End neighbourhoods that would otherwise be very similar in the look and feel of the district. But in terms of future development, I think there's definitely a trend towards Limehouse becoming more like Canary Wharf, which is just east of the neighbourhood. So, for example, I was looking at this derelict site that has been derelict for for ages. I don't even know since when. But there's a plan to build a really high-rise hotel block right next to the West Ferry Station. And Canary Wharf is even featured in the name. I can't remember exactly what it was. I think there's definitely a sense that developers see Limehouse as the next district that can Mm -hmm. be gentrified and become more catered to the people who are moving in, the Mm -hmm. the younger, more socially mobile population. I think there's some overlapping between this concept of um, the palimpsest and this technique of collaging and picking out fragments of history and um, the fictional and integrating that into the present, the real fabric, so-called real fabric. And yeah, I think there's a parallel between kind of the fictional realms of, of Limehouse, which runs parallel to the existing and also kind of the historic layers of Limehouse that also run kind of beneath the existing fabric. Like, although they are, of course, different in some ways because one is imagined and one actually existed, although it's no longer there, but they're both affecting the, the present and now by having some sort of mark in the cultural imagination of that space. Super interesting, the cultural imagination, just that that phrase in itself makes me think how in any sort of future scenario where Limehouse is being developed, let's say, it, it is interesting to, as architects <laughs> in the making, let's not get in trouble with the RIBA. It's, by the way, illegal to call yourself an architect until you're an actual architect, for those of you calling yourself an architect right now. (laughs) But yeah, it's interesting to try and figure out what our service can be as architects in that space when the time comes for it. Because looking at the work that you do, there's a specific section that you drew, which is just so captivating in that you can kind of see different scenes happening where, yeah, this OPM kind of secret society meeting is happening in the basements and behind the facade is something completely unexpected or perhaps very expected or strange and private. There's something that I find uh, uncontrollable about the life a building takes on when it's been signed off and, and whoever occupies it kind of takes it to wherever they want it to go. And so it makes me think if people are aware of the, the history of Limehouse, do you think that there is a way in bringing that history to the forefront? It seems as though your work is employing all of these motifs that are used to articulate history through fiction and using the imaginary as a way of documenting the past, popular culture, film, you know, poetry, whatever. But yeah, architecture doing that in a way that can be felt. Do you think that there's room for that for Limehouse, that there should be any sort of retention of the history in a way that its memory can be warped into something else in the future? Or should it kind of be beholden to its past? Yeah, so I think that is a very interesting task that the architects can take on, which is to sort of evoke this fictional and historical memory within the current fabric. But um, it's also one that's quite tricky because it's very easily doing something that 
doesn't really hold real meaning for the present. So it has to be dealt with very sensitively, I think. And it's something that I don't really have an answer to yet, but I'm investigating how to sort of negotiate this very delicate matter and to derive a language that is capable of doing that. And it's also tricky because a lot of these motifs, say the fictional motifs, belong to the dominant narrative because the dominant na narrative is usually what gets preserved through writing. And the narratives so-called of the other or of marginalized groups are less prevalent in what is written and perhaps more prevalent in like oral histories or other types of types of history that is less easily archived or less mm -hmm. easily discovered. So it's quite important to take into account what kind of visual motif we're representing if we want to bring these back into the current material fabric of the city and into urban spaces. So that, that is something that I'm working on and hopefully yeah. we'll find an answer to. <laughs> I can completely relate in that sense of knowing that there isn't a definite solution to any of these things, but trying to find a way of preserving information and making it accessible in a world that is, is still living in the Western canon. How you approach this context, Limehouse, also has a subjective lens to it, right? Like, I mean, you are your own brain, like we are all different people, but mm -hmm. do you use that as a, a way to prompt provocations? And do you step back from your work and, and ask, the questions that you've just proposed to think about how your subjective perspective morphs reality itself. One can read about the history of Limehouse through all of the accounts that you've mentioned, which are really exciting. Um, I also came across a, a mention of a film. I'm not sure if you've come across it, but it was produced in 1929. I haven't watched it yet. Ah, is it um, Broken Blossoms? Um, it's called Piccadilly. Yeah, uh, I've I've watched bits of that actually. And that yeah, that film is quite interesting in that it tackles the divide between the West End and the East End. From what I re can recall, it's about a woman from the Chinese community who went to perform in nightclubs as a singer, I think, in the nightclubs of West End and gained favor amongst the audience and also amongst her boss and then there's some kind of romantic story developing but then there's constant contrast and switches between the east end and the west end mm -hmm. and that sense of the divide still remains today in this divide between west london and east london the kind of dynamics between the Canary Wharf developments and sort of the older neighborhoods of the East End. It seems as a juxtaposition in, in collaging or in, in laying out certain images from different times can be quite a provocative way of just asking visual questions that don't necessarily need to be answered in that point in time. Like I, I keep going back to this collage that you've done and it just makes me think, are you documenting your work process as a way of also creating a new form of repository, a new form of archiving, because there's so much, I can imagine so much content going in and then stamping it or embossing it and then revisiting this content, stamping it, embossing it to create a sort of facade. In kind of my investigations um, in trying to derive what I would call a language that represents all these different layers of um, fiction and strangeness, I've tried to 
sort of model fragments, pick up fragments from both historical photographs and um, contemporary Limehouse, collage them together and then use kind of quite abstract techniques of putting them together and casting it and then taking mm -hmm. them apart again and then putting that them together in different ways to very intuitively just develop an abstract language of something that's quite odd. And yep. I think this way of disassembling and then assembling creates a lot of accidents visually mm -hmm. and um, kind of spatially as well. And that alludes to a strangeness that is perhaps quite quite like tectonic rather than cultural. Because mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think there's, there's a source of strangeness that is very intuitive so you look at it and you you realize something is not quite right about it but then there's also another source of strangeness that is more associated with cultural symbols or um yeah a particular tradition so like say say like a pyramid motif is quite significant in like occult history and mm -hmm. occult mythology so that would be strange if you look at it from that perspective mm -hmm. whereas um maybe something that's incomplete or has like an abrupt change of material would be quite intuitively mm -hmm, strange mm -hmm. to people. That's super interesting that you speak about tectonics because it seems as though when those two things meet, there's a, a contextualization that has to happen. Yeah, like how it how it then sits in in the site itself. We're at a point in our research where we're mapping out, we're we're researching, we're we're doing field work, whatever that means in a socially distanced world. Uh, trying to engage with our sites as much as possible, <laughs> doing architecture without architecture. Next year, or the second bit of the program, then kind of encourages a design outlook. So it will be interesting to revisit this recording in itself or this, this podcast episode to see how that tectonic starts to become something quite tactile, even though you've been working in this very tactile manner. Because our episode is coming to an, an end, it would be good to find out where we can see the things that you're speaking about, your, your process, your images, just plug your details, let us know, because we want to follow you. We want to be in Limehouse too. <laughs> yeah, so definitely, please follow me on Instagram, and my username is um, Lo Shirley, L-O-S-H-I-R-L-E-Y. And uh, you can also find my page on the Cambridge Design and Research Studio website. Brilliant. And uh, there will be a link to my fieldwork blog. Perfect. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast and teaching us about a place that we previously didn't know about, which is really exciting. Hopefully we will be able to visit it sometime. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. 